Okay. Um, I'm going to preach back here. All right, so I'm going to use this at the very end. This will come in later, maybe, if I have time. So, uh, try to get the message down under an hour and a half. So, uh, you think I'm joking? I am, I am. Um, yeah, so I was asked uh, a few weeks ago to preach, um, to teach today. And I, uh, and don't, please don't be distracted by my broken thumb. I'm going to have to hold it here the whole time. I talk with my hands a lot, so it's going to be kind of funny looking. But um, I won't be able to make the finger movements that I usually do. Um, so I was asked to preach uh, a few weeks ago. And I didn't know what I was going to be preaching on. Um, and then uh, when I looked over the passage a couple weeks ago, it was really awesome because, and very timely, because this is actually kind of the climate. This is what God, exactly what God has been teaching me for the last three or four months. And so this is coming from a place of like, um, somewhat from experience, from experience I had with Jesus very recently. And uh, um, yeah, it's, it's, it means a lot to me. So I'm excited to share with you guys. So um, the passage I'll be teaching out of is First Timothy uh, 1, 12 through 17. Um, I'm going to open there. And uh, 1 Timothy is always like the hardest one to find. Anybody have that struggle? Is it just me? Okay, cool. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm going to read, read this for us, read this past for us, and I'm going to pray for us. All right. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though faithful, uh, though formerly I was a blasphemer, prosecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus, might, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Okay. So, there's a lot here. And um, I'm just going to hone in on a couple, uh, on um, three main themes or ideas, because uh, there's a lot going on here. And so, uh, every time I do this, I start off and I'm kind of like, okay, how am I going to talk for 35, 45 minutes? Like, how, how am I going to do this? And then by the end of me preparing, I'm like, how am I possibly going to get it back down to 35 or 45 minutes? And so that's, that was the struggle. And so, um, but I think I've done it. So uh, I'm going to pray for us and we'll get into it. So God, uh, I ask that you would use me today. I pray that uh, what, what I talk about isn't my ideas. God, I pray that, uh, that you're using me to com- communicate what you want to. Um, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be softened this morning, that our ears would be open uh, to hear what you would want to tell us today. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. Okay, so last week, Ryan talked about uh, heresy, right? So 1 Timothy, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of the historical context of 1 Timothy. Some of you guys weren't here last week, so I want to give you guys what the letter is all about. So um, 
At this point in Paul's life, so this is a letter written from Paul to Timothy. So at this point in Paul's life, he's been traveling around um, planting churches, starting churches. He's built this kind of team of co-workers to labor with him. And uh, um, yes, and among these were Barnabas, Silas, Timothy. So Timothy was this young guy that he met in the city of Lystra. And Paul was so impressed with his devotion and love for Jesus that he kind of adopted him along and said, I want to mentor you in the faith. And so after many years of mentoring, he started sending Timothy back out on these missions to different churches. Um, When problems would arise or things like that, he would send them back um, to kind of bring order and point people back to Jesus. Um, And so, uh, so when Paul gets word that one of the most influential churches in Ephesus... Um, has been kind of infiltrated by a group of leaders who are uh, teaching um, incorrect views about Jesus and what it means to follow him. He sends Timothy back uh, to confront these leaders and their false teaching uh, and to restore order to the church. Um, And so this letter he sends after Timothy has gone back, he sends this letter as kind of some instruction on how he is to fulfill this, uh, this mission that he sent him on. And so I'll be talking about 12 through 17, and uh, last week, Ryan talked about the first, he tackled the first section that was really dealing with a lot of the false teachings and what we would call heresy, right? And so what I'm talking about today is actually kind of, what he talked about bleeds into what I'm talking about today, and what my passage is almost like the climax, in some ways, of what uh, Ryan talked about last week. Um, And so, that being said, I want to kind of focus in on the central message of this passage, also happens to be the central message of the entirety of the New Testament, and it's found in verse 15, and I'll read that for you guys. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came, in, came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So, here's the deal. Many times, we as believers can like read passages like this and kind of skim over it. Uh, in search of some more like practical teaching, something that's going to like I don't know help me in my faith, some more deeper theological truth or something like that, something practical we can be looking for. Um, and sometimes we can miss that this is good news, and that it's not good news to our hearts as we read it. Um, some of you guys, uh, many of us in here are believers and followers of Jesus, and yet yeah, we can read over this and, and, and not see it as good news. Um, kind of skim over it, and, and there's going to be people in here who have never come to know and follow Jesus. And so to you, this kind of sounds, this fact that Jesus came into the world to save sinners may seem kind of foreign, doesn't seem like good news, like foreign, kind of strange concept. But by the end of the day, I want to, my prayer is that we would all see that the fact that Jesus came into the world to save sinners is the best news that you will hear your entire life. And God willing, it should always, like, strike joy into our hearts. In fact, I love what Paul, so as Paul is writing this, literally in verse, so it goes all the way to verse 16, and then if you notice verse 17, he breaks into this chorus of praise, uh, uh, praising King Jesus as the immortal, invisible, eternal God of the universe. As he's writing, as he's seeing this good news, that doesn't help his point at all. Like, this isn't a part of what he's saying. He just erupts into this praise, right? And so my, my hope is that all of us will get to see why He's erupting into praise and why he's full of this joy and that we will all join him in that. Okay, so uh, being raised a good Southern Baptist, uh, I came up with a nice alliteration to guide our time together. Okay? Call it the three S's. Uh, is it up? Nope. Sin, sinner, 
and salvation. Yeah, it's very Baptist. Um, three concepts that really Paul explores, and he goes, he comes to a firm understanding and teaching on, and understanding these three things will lead you into a good call, Jeff. Um, will lead you into this eruption of praise when we come to know and believe these things. And so, uh, yeah, let's jump into it. Um, sin. All right. So in order to understand uh, why I'm talking about sin, uh, we have to backtrack a little bit. So I'm doing 12 through 17, um, but I'm going to have to work backwards a little bit. So last week Ryan talked about heresies and, and how they can come into the church and, uh, and how even we deal with them today and how um, the gospel is the answer in light of this. And so uh, in order to understand what we're talking about today, we look back and we see last week there was like this list of sins that uh, Ryan talked about. And, um, yeah, so, so and the, these false teachers were essentially teaching about sex and marriage and food and coming up with these strange teachings that were not consistent with the teachings of Jesus. And so, um, yeah, one of, so as we talked about some of those heresies, um, one of the more insidious teachings, and, that, and this is what Paul is dealing with in the section that I'm talking about, would be uh, something that we in the church call legalism. Um, so, Paul actually names a couple of these false teachers. As, their names are Alexander and Hymenaeus. Uh, and, and they were essentially teaching people that you must do X or you must not do X if you wish to be right with God. Uh, so, this idea that you can follow the rules, you can pray, read the Torah, the law, the Bible, um, Give, be kind, do good things, uh, and, and you will earn God's favor. And so what Paul does in verse eight, verses 8 through 11 um, is uh, essentially debunk that. So he gives this list of sins. He says that uh, the law is not for the just, but it's for the, un- it's for the unjust and the lawless. Okay, And then he lists all these sins. And so I remember last week reading those sins and kind of... It would be easy to read those and kind of feel like he's accusing certain sins as being worse than others. He gives this list of sins. Uh, among some of them were like striking your mother and father, uh, murder. But then in that list, he throws in lying and disobedience, which is interesting. He talks about these, these really terrible sins and these, then some of these sins that we all kind of deal with. So... What Paul is making the case here is not that some sins are worse than others, but he's saying that we all are accused by the law. So Alexander and Hymenaeus were essentially saying that the law is used um, to, the law is given so that you can hear the rules, you can obey them, and you can be a good person, be right with God. Okay? And what Paul is saying is that the law is so big and so vast, you can't follow all the rules, it's too big for you, and you cannot be right with God. The whole purpose of the law was to expose the human condition, is what Paul is saying here. So, um, it's, here I want to make a distinction between uh, sin as a concept and sins. All right. Uh, previous to now, you may have thought that they're the same thing. You may have even thought that they were synonyms. Oh. Got him. Okay. Good. Yeah. That's one of those. Oh God. Like kind of kind of jokes. We got to clap. Good. Okay. So so uh, so I want to make this. Thank you. So uh, 
Um, yeah, sins are these actions or inactions. It's essentially a disobeying of some law that God has given, and so you commit a sin. And there are many, many sins, but sin is what I want to get into, is this idea of the noun version, the concept, the... Um, and so what actually Paul is talking about is sin is the human condition. The idea that we cannot follow the law, we cannot be good, um, we're inher- inherently broken, right? And so... Um, so the whole, like I said, the whole point of what Paul giving this list of sins is that we can't follow. And so that's a small list. And so whenever I was looking, I did a little bit of research. Um, and by a little bit of research, I mean I googled it to find out how many sins are in the Bible. Any guesses on how many sins are in the Bible? Thousands. Thousands? Okay. Uh, this website named like a really specific number. But, uh, um, which I, some of it's kind of questionable. But it's 667 Sins. Yeah. Um, accor- that is according to www.wogim.org forward slash sin list. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it names all these sins, which, which, which basically means it names all these laws that can be broken um, from the Old and New Testament. Uh, and, um, yeah, and then it gives the little passage that it goes, that, that references it, that says the law that you would be breaking if you committed this sin. Um, so it names things all the way from murder to malpractice, uh, from stubbornness to selfishness to striking a man in the groin. Deuteronomy 25.11. I don't know. That was kind of weird. Um, but it's in there, so... Um, so yeah, I'm reading this list. So like, I remember, uh, a few days ago, I'm like reading through this list of sins, and then I'm like thinking to myself, "Crap, I do 631 of these things like regularly. Um, what does that say about me? Like, uh, this is not good for me. You know, um, I may not be murdering people, but I am full of pride and selfishness very often. Um, yeah, and so and so the common defense that I hear um, most often is like, "Come on, you're being too hard on yourself. Look." N- Ever, no, no, nobody's perfect. We're only human. That's what I, I hear that a lot. We're only human. And so to that I would say, yes, exactly. That's the point. So that's the point Paul is making, is that this human condition, when we say we're only human, we're saying, yeah, we're not perfect. And so what the Bible is actually saying, that you were made to be perfect. You see, the word sin comes from the Greek word hamartia. Okay, and it actually means to miss the mark. So this is an archery term. So... If any of you have done archery, maybe a few of you, um, you know what it is. Uh, you have this target, right? This I always picture the, the fox, Robin Hood, I don't know, for some reason. I always picture that. Um, and, uh, and, and there's this little, little circle in the middle, and you have to hit that circle, right? And anything out of hitting that mark is what this is to say, hamartia, is sin. If you don't hit that perfectly, anything, no matter how far out from it, it's Hamartia, it's sin, okay? And so, when we have this as the definition for sin, it becomes like, that you understand that there is more than 667 sins. It means that anything we do can be considered sin, that it's missing that mark. So what is this mark that we're supposed to be hitting? And so, in order to understand that, we have to backtrack again a little bit to Genesis, okay? And so, you see, we were created for Perfection. We weren't created to experience bitterness, selfishness, pride, anger, any of these things. We were created perfect. And as Tripp mentioned um, briefly earlier, we were created in God's image. Okay? Something went wrong. And so many of you guys know the story in Genesis. I remember as a kid, 
uh, and even as into my teenage years, I would hear the story of Adam and Eve, and it kind of sounded just like a children's story to me. Like, I didn't really get it. It was strange talking snakes and like a poisonous apple and these kind of things. I didn't really understand how that applied to me. And somehow, because Adam and Eve took a fruit, now I have to go to hell and all these kind of things. It just, I didn't see, there was like this cognitive dissonance. I didn't really understand how they connected. I didn't get it. Um, until you look back, you read the story and understand that it, this story interprets reality. The reality that you and I engage in every single day. So many of you know the story, right? God created them perfect. And He created them to have a, perf- to have a perfect relationship with Him. To love God and to be satisfied fully in Him and to then love each other. And so what happened? God said, He made everything. He literally, the only charge He gave them was have babies and rule the world on my behalf. That's a pretty good life. And yet he said one thing, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why did he have to put the tree there? He had to give them a choice, otherwise they were robots, right? He had to give them a choice to enjoy the life that he set forth for them or choose themselves, right? And so what happens? The serpent comes in and says, did God actually say that you couldn't eat it? Because God said you will, you, will, you will surely die if you eat of this fruit. And so the serpent says, God doesn't actually want what's best for you. That's what the serpent tells him. He says, God is afraid that you're going to become like him. So then, as you guys know, they, they fall victim to this. They believe this lie about God. They take the fruit. And so what happens is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what, what this is saying is they didn't trust God's definition of good and evil. They wanted to define good and evil for themselves. In essence, they wanted to become their own God. They wanted to reject God, become their own God, and be the boss of their own life. And so in that... The, the, the punishment, the wrath for that is death. God, as Jeff put a few weeks ago, He's the, the giver of life. And life is found in connection with Him. But they were separated from Him because they rejected Him. And so God says that the punishment for sin is death and separation from the giver of life. So that's what we experience. So sin then, the Bible, dis, the Bible defines sin as this kind of toxic blend of selfishness and pride. This idea that not just Adam and Eve took the fruit, but you and I take the fruit every single time that we choose our will over God's will. And that's it. Like, that's what sin is. It's, it's, and it infects every single one of us. You see, under this definition of sin, right, it, it, it says that it infects all of our motives, even. So the thing is, is like, with this definition of sin, even good things we do can be sin. Because it can be wrapped up in selfishness and pride. Right, so even me giving like a homeless person $10 can be sin because I'm doing it because it makes me feel good. That's crazy. Like, but this is saying like anything done apart from this life-giving relationship with God is sin. Um, yeah, so, so sins are these laws that you break and you commit sin. Sin is what we would say is the human condition. This, like I said, this toxic blend of selfishness and pride. So where does that leave us? So, so, so Paul says we're all infected with this. He, say, he gives that list, and, and Ryan talked about that list last week, to show that every single person is accused by the law. No one can follow it. No one can follow all the laws perfectly. Therefore, every single person sins. Therefore, every single person is a sinner. Which brings me to my next point. Slightly smaller. Um, Okay, this is where it starts to get really good. Because this is where we get into Paul's, uh, Paul's story. And I love this. Um, man, I learned a lot when I was studying for this. This is really exciting. Um, uh, so, so, so we look at who Paul used to be. And what he says about himself is that he used to be a blasphemer, 
a persecutor and an insolent person. Okay? So this is in verse 14 he says this. And so I think if we were to stop there, it would be easy to say, he said, but then I received grace, but I used to be this insolent person, this terrible person, I received grace. Um, and it would be easy to stop there of, of, of all... Like if we summarize all that we've read so far and think, okay, what Paul's saying is I used to be really bad, but now I'm a Christian um, and I've got my life together. I've experienced God's grace, so I no longer miss the mark. And unfortunately, that's how a lot of people view Christians. And that's how we can view ourselves is that, okay, now I'm a Christian and I follow the rules. I'm a good person now, right? Like, and a lot of times, that's how people often view the church as like us, kind of on our moral high horse, noses up in the air, judging and condemning other people. Um, and unknowingly, sometimes we can feel that way about ourselves. We can look down at other people. We can feel like we're morally superior to others. There's this meme that makes me laugh every single time. You guys, I don't know if you guys know the Willy Wonka memes where he's like, like doing that little, little pose. Yeah. And so he says, it says, uh, Oh, you've become a born-again Christian? Please tell me how that qualifies you to condemn and judge my sinful satanic life. And it's like, I totally get that. <laughs> I was kind of raised in an environment where that was happening a lot. Um, so, so, so we can come to this conclusion that uh, Paul's saying, like, I used to be a sinner, but now I'm all good. But then we get to verse 15, and it totally debunks that idea. The idea that we can even be good, right? He says in verse, t- uh, verse 15, um, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And the word foremost here is the, is the Greek word protos, which means first, some other translations say the chief of sinners. Paul is saying like, first prize sinner of the year is me. I'm the worst. Like this is crazy. This is Paul, like the exemplar of Christianity, like the one of the heroes of the faith, writer of most of the New Testament coming out saying something like this, I'm the worst sinner that there is. That's crazy. Like, and, and it's, honestly, it's pretty scandalous to have like the writer of the New Testament saying this. So please notice, and this was crazy, he's not saying I was the chief sinner. He's not saying I used to be this terrible person, but now I've got it all sorted, clean as a whistle. He's saying, I am the chief of all sinners. He says it twice. He says that in verse 15, and then he says it again in verse 16. He wants to drive this point home. So what do we do with that? Like Paul. This is the guy that we're reading. We're reading all this wisdom that comes from him, and yet he's the chief sinner. Is this like a false humility? Because sometimes, I, I, if you, probably a month, or probably like a year ago, I would have thought, like, Paul's just kind of like, Oh, I'm the worst sinner, you know. Woe is me, whip on the back. You know, if Paul were to text me that a year ago, I would have texted back an eye roll emoji. I would have been like, God, Paul, you're not the worst. Come on, you're no Hitler, seriously. Come on, to which I think he would have responded with an emphatic, I absolutely am, praise hands emoji. I feel like he would use that a lot. (laughs) This is a thought out stance he's come to on himself. This isn't the only place he says it either. He says in 1 Corinthians that I am the least of all the apostles and I am the least of all the saints, he says in Ephesians 3. So, and, and Paul tells us a little bit about who he was before. A blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent person. That's who he used to be. 
The rest of the New Testament tells us about the life he led before he came to know Jesus. He would hunt down, persecute, imprison, and even kill Christians all in the name of serving God. That's who he used to be, and yet he still uses the present tense. He's come to know God, come to know the grace of Jesus, and yet he still says in the present tense, I am the chief of all sinners. We need to just look at Romans 8 and see the struggle. Or, I'm sorry, Romans 7 and see the struggle. He says, For this I know that in me... Uh, for, or he says, For I know that nothing good in me dwells. He says, That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do is the thing that I keep on doing. It's like the most schizophrenic verse in the New Testament. But it rings true. If, you, if you've known Jesus for any amount of time, you understand this struggle of like, I want to do what's good. I have this desire, this passion. I want to serve and love God. I can't do it. So, uh, okay, I realize that this has been kind of a dim message up until this point. Uh, basically, that there's this huge sin cancer cloud that infects all of us, and that even the most morally upright among us are claiming to be hopelessly sinful. Like, like Paul, arguably the best among us, this guy who like, was known for selflessly giving of himself, going serving people, giving to people, starting churches is saying, I'm the worst sinner. Where does that put me? So, so I realize this is kind of, kind of a dim message at this point. So happy celebration Sunday. Um, no, there's reason to celebrate. So it had to go this way because it isn't until we see the bad news for how bad it actually is that we can celebrate the good news for how good it is and how powerful and how beautiful it is. You see, it's not until we can look inward and see our brokenness. It's not that we can look upward and see our Savior. We desperately want to believe that we don't need a Savior. We want to believe we can fix ourselves. doesn't matter if you are a Christian or not a Christian. Like, we want to fix ourselves. That's our bend. We're naturally trying to push God out saying, I can fix you. I can, even as Christians, I can serve you, God. I can, and, and we want to do it without Him. If we're not doing what we're doing out of uh, love for Jesus, like... The Bible says it's sin. Anything, Paul says later, anything done apart from faith is sin. It's a big definition of sin. We cannot fix ourselves and, this, ourselves. and this is where the good news comes in. Verse 15, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus didn't come into the world as a teacher. That's what most people think. Most people in the world believe that, I mean, they agree that Jesus walked on, on the earth. They think that He came to teach you how to live your life. And the main teaching that Jesus taught was that you can't be good enough. You can't follow the rules. You absolutely cannot. You need someone to save you. So, we're, so, so far, what we've come to is that, that there's this sin, right? So, and this, this def, under this definition of sin that we talked about, every single one of us stands condemned by God's law as sinners. And Jesus says, you need a Savior. And so I remember growing up, like I was raised a pastor's kid, so like I heard Jesus died for your sins a thousand times. And honestly, I never really got what that means. Like, how did a Jewish man who was hated by his own people come, die, be crucified by his own people, right? Him dying, how does that absolve me of my sins? I don't understand where the connection is. Somehow he died and took them, and I'm forgiven because of it. I didn't understand until, man, until I was 18 years old. And then this verse does a good job of summarizing. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made Him who knew no sin to become sin 
on our behalf so that we would become the righteousness, so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. So how did He accomplish this? Jesus, the only innocent one, the only truly good human to ever live, took all of the sin of humanity into Himself. God literally, like, as He's hanging out, see, Jesus wasn't afraid of a Roman cross or nails. That's not the That wasn't the hard part of the crucifixion, right? Jesus was hanging on the cross. As He's hanging there, all of the wrath of God against sin, all of the sin that you and I have have done all through history, all the sins of man, put on Him. And that's crazy. It doesn't say that He became a sinner. It says He became sin. Like, He became the villain that you celebrate the death of at the end of those movies. You know what I'm saying? Like, just the, all the ugliness and brokenness of sin put into him. God condemns him guilty of your sin and my sin and crushes him. It says in Isaiah, Isaiah that God crushed Jesus for your sin and mine. He quite literally took the hell that you and I deserved. He took the separation that we deserved that we, for taking the fruit, for wanting to be our own gods, and said, I wanna, I'll take that separation, that hell, and I want to give you my life. He took our death and gave us his life. He didn't simply do this to absolve us of our sins either. He bought us back from sin and death to give us eternal life. And it starts now. So, okay, there's this passage from a guy named John Flavel that summarizes this idea, this need, this sin need that we have, the idea that we're sinners and what God did in light of it. And I want to read it for you guys. I might cry a little because I do every time. Um, it's so good. It's this, it's this like dialogue between God the Father and God the Son. It's like fictional, but true too. Like it's this idea of what God and Jesus may have been talking about in light of this brokenness of humanity. And so if you guys can listen for just a second. Um, so this is the Father saying to the Son. My Son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of their souls. What shall be done for them? And the son responds, O my father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for, for them as their surety. Bring in all of their bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in. That there, be, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand shall you require it. I would rather choose to suffer your wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, Father, upon me be all of their debt. And the Father responds, But my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay every last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. Content, Father. Let it be. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all of my riches and empty all of my treasures, yes, I am content to undertake it. This is why Paul erupts into praise in verse 17. Because he has come to know that in spite of all of that he has done in the past, all the evil, all the wickedness that he has done in the past, and all the sin that he still struggles with, he is perfectly accepted and unconditionally loved because Jesus came for him. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You see, Paul was likely surrounded by memories of the life 
that he once lived, right? So he got, imagine, imagine Paul's going through the, the, um, the Roman Empire planting churches. When what did he used to do? He used to hunt down, kill, and imprison Christians. So what happens when he walks by that widow, that son, that daughter of the person that he imprisoned or even killed? Like he would be reminded over and over, and yet we don't see him hanging his head low. We see him bursting into celebration. He says, if he even meditates on it for a second, how weighty sin is and how he is the chief of sinners, how he knows that he looks inward and sees the brokenness. He can't help but celebrate because he knows he's been perfectly loved in Jesus. See, Paul understands the nature of humanity. He understands sin. He is aware that he's a sinner, all too aware. But at the same time, he's aware that he's perfectly loved in Jesus. This is good news. I love how T- Tim Keller puts it. He says, The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. That sucks. <laughs> he says, We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. See, when you come to know this and believe this, it changes everything. It changes how you view everything. So where's the practical application? So that's where the result of salvation comes in, what it does in our hearts. It gives you an entirely new identity. You see, when we're believing in the gospel, this gospel, it totally destroys pride, right? The gospel says that we are all equally broken. We're all equally sinful and in desperate need of a Savior. Not one single person is better than another. And so that, that produces, that breaks your pride and then gives you humility because I'm not better than you and yet Jesus came and He saved me. It gives you a true selfless love. You see, our love is often tainted with selfishness. Like, I'm going to love you until you hurt me and then I'm not. So, but, but when we believe the gospel, we experience this unconditional selfless love of Jesus. It pours into us and it overflows into other people. Just lost the mic. Um... So it overflows into other people. When you're believing the gospel, you can let go of your bitterness. You can forgive that person who wounded you so deeply. Because you know that you wounded Jesus. Because your sin put Him on the cross and yet He came for you, He loved you, and He gave everything for you. And when you believe in the gospel, shame is gone. You don't sit around feeling sorry for yourself because of the life you lived or the sins you struggle with now because Jesus took care of every ounce of it. You get to live a life of love and joy and peace and patience, what we call the fruit of the Spirit. Basically, all of this is is what God's Spirit produces in you when you believe the truth that He speaks over you, that you're perfectly loved in Jesus. So I'm going to draw this for you. I'm almost done. Um, So, that's sketchy. Okay. So um, this was super helpful for me. Uh, I uh, used to think that basically, well, I used to think I was a pretty good person. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, even I, after coming to know Jesus, I remember like immediately my life start, my, my behavior started being better. Like I started like you know you know I didn't smoke, I didn't chew, and I didn't go with girls who do. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's, that's another Baptist one for you. Okay, so um, no, but my behavior started getting better. I'm really thinking I'm pretty, I'm a pretty good person now, you know. And so what I've come to find out though is what. So this process of becoming more like Jesus, of believing the gospel and believing the gospel in every area of our life, 
it's kind of upside down as to what I thought progress really looked like. So I'm going to aim to see you guys a little bit. So I'm going to give this, this illustration helped me so much and it's rang true in my life. So basically, here was my life up until I was 18 years old. So that's, that's all of me. Okay. So in order to come to know Jesus, in order to experience God's grace, you need to know three things. You need to understand that God is good. He's great. He is holy and righteous. I'm not going to write all that, but you get the idea. God is good. He's holy and He's righteous. But then you also need to know that you are not bad. When you can understand these two things, you see this chasm between each other. Right? So, and then, then the, the third thing you need to understand is that verse 15, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Right. So at this point in my life, I see the cross. And it makes me love Jesus. So that's what this produces in me. I see God is good. I see I am not. And He came to save me. And it makes me love Jesus. And so I thought, okay, so I'll get better now. Except we have Paul, the apostle, saying I'm the worst of all sinners. And so what happens then in your life is that you have these two divergent lines here. One going up this way, and then one going down this way. So what happens is you come to realize, like, like, uh, like Tim Keller said, that... Basically, you are far worse than you ever thought. That this sin, this selfishness, this pride runs deeper into you than you ever imagined. It infects all of your motives. And and you're desperate for God. And God is better than you ever thought. Holier and better than you had ever imagined. And so what happens? Jesus becomes so much bigger And you love Him so much more because you realize, I am broken and messed up and God is so good. Jesus came into the world to save me. This is what sanctification, this is what looking more like Jesus comes to. This is why Paul, the apostle, the most influential man in the church, the one who God used maybe more than any other person on the planet, can say, I'm the chief of all sinners. This rings true for me. I told you at the beginning that this is what God's been teaching me over the last few months. And what God's been teaching me is that uh, exactly this. That I am messed up. It's easy to look at the person up here teaching and think they got it all together. My heart is so... If you, that's my roommates. They live with me. I'm selfish. I'm broken. I'm prideful. My motives are all messed up. I want people to look at me and praise me for my um, achievements or these or whatever. You know, I want people. I care way too much what people think. I become insecure or prideful. All of these kind of things, and 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 I, I realize this. God's shown me this. How messed up I am over the last uh, few months. And when I'm not believing the gospel, I'm crushed by it. When I'm believing this, like I just I become insecure. Everything I get depressed. Like everything sucks because I realize now that I'm worse than I ever thought. But when I am believing it, I, I love Jesus now more than I ever have in my entire life. Because I can look inward and see how much I need Him. So I would invite all of us, look inward. Don't justify anymore. Stop, I'm not that bad. Look, you may not be Hitler or Ivan the Terrible, but it's not for lack of talent. Like, we're our hearts are broken and we need a savior and what happens when we believe this we get the fruit of the spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness this is the life that we get when we believe this 
So, brothers and sisters, friends, let us look inward and see our brokenness, but then let us quickly look upward and see our Savior who came for us in spite of it. I'll pray for us. Father, thank you so much for how good you are to us. We don't deserve an ounce of it. Let us never believe that we do. I pray that we're consumed with you, Jesus. God, I pray that we... I pray that all that we do is motivated and empowered by our, our love for you and the love that you poured out into us. So when we go out from here, we can love people selflessly, not because we need their love in return, but because we are filled up with your love. You have spoken over us that you are perfectly accepted as you are, struggling in sin even now. You are loved and accepted. Now go forth and give that love away. Understand that you're adopted sons and daughters, that we are so loved. God, I pray that we would know this, be filled with it. God, I thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for saving me. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.